Welcome to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Kim is a psychotherapist and executive director of ICU Talks, a mental health speaking ministry. This is a podcast about how to flip your lid and learning how to reconnect to who you really are. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Flip Your Lid. Real special guest today. I got Madeline Black. I'll tell you a little bit about Madeline. She has an unusual personal story, which she uses to inspire and motivate others. In March 2018, she won the Amazing Strength Award at the number one magazine, Amazing Women Awards. In October of the same year, was asked to be the patron for, for Say Women, which is a Skies organization which offers safe accommodation support to young women who are survivors of sexual abuse and rape and who are homeless. She's one of 50 thrivers taking part in research of the Global Resilience Project to develop a resilience blueprint for others. She's a TEDx speaker, storyteller for the Forgiveness Project, and has recently become involved with her program, Restore, sharing her stories in prisons. In June 2020, she was asked to be patron for Justice Is Now, an organization that campaigns to end the use of rape, myths, and victim blaming in the criminal justice system. November of last year, she started her own podcast called Unbroken, the podcast with Madeline Black. In December of 2020, she was asked to be the ambassador for freedom from abuse. Her memoir, Unbroken, was published on April 4th, 2017. So, Madeline, welcome. Thank you so much for being part of Flip Your Lid. Thank you, Kim. So lovely to be here with you. And you and I first got a little bit acquainted because we were both named the top 50 thrivers about the world, I do believe, because you're you're not in North Carolina. You're kind of in the UK. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am in the UK. I'm yeah. in Scotland, to be precise. He's in, in Scotland, people. So for those of us who got educated in South and North Carolina, like, we don't even know what Scotland is. We don't get taught past <laughs> Virginia. Like, we don't know a whole lot. So I'm just it's saying. It's across the pond. <laughs> it's across the pond. That's great. <laughs> I love that. So we first got acquainted with that. We've both been TEDx speakers in, in different places. But in, in have some some resiliency within us, but your story is phenomenal. And what you've done with it is is what makes you such a thriver. Because unfortunately, a lot of us have your story, but we don't know how to thrive afterwards. We don't know how to get restored after yeah. that. And you've done an amazing job. So will you share with my wonderful audience what flipped your lid that caused you to disconnect from who you are? And what did you do to get reconnected? To who you really, really are in this world. Yeah, I guess my my lid was flipped for me. I didn't go out to flip my lid. It, I was just 13. It was in the late 1970s. And after a night out with a friend, I guess I did what most people do. You know, I lied to my mum and dad one night about where I was staying because my friend's mum was away and we had this empty flat and we both bought alcohol. It was much easier then to get away by an alcohol underage and we got very drunk and two young men took us back to her mum's empty flat and they proceeded to rape me over four to five hours mm. every way that they could basically and were very violent right and, and part of that violence like you were you were stabbed I was yeah yeah so like it was they sexually took away your entire innocence they took everything away from you and they physically like attacked you and assaulted you it is, yeah. They, I would really say they raped and tortured me over over that length of time. Yeah, absolutely. And your friend that was there was untouched. She was untouched. And, you know, I get a lot of questions about that. Uh, and I never really know what happened to her. I sometimes think that maybe the same thing happened to her and she 
put it out of her mind. Like I put it out of my mind for years. I numbed out and shut down from it for a long time. Maybe nothing happened to her. So when we eventually, when I eventually found my voice, which took me three years and my parents phoned her, she said it hadn't happened. Like I said, it had happened that they were nice boys. You know, they had just brought us home. They were both sons of diplomats. And she said, they just brought us home. So that stayed with me for a long time, but you know, I'll never know. And there's no point trying to drive myself crazy about wondering what happened to her. Yeah, I, I think that the interesting thing is that when someone else, like it's the, it's the power of empathy, that even if nothing happened to her, it could have been a, an ally for you. And yeah. that's part of the sadness that I feel when I hear your story is that the one person, it's like having a sibling that's a witness to your abuse and then they say it didn't happen. Yes. Like, it's just an ally that doesn't get to be an ally. I know, and then I get people that have read the book and say, do you think she set it up? Like, it's a big conspiracy, and I I don't think that at all. I just think it was the wrong place at the wrong time. I don't think she had anything to do with introducing Uh, me to these two young guys. But uh, people are very, it's interesting to see where people's minds go with other people's stories. Right, yeah. And of course, she's not the focus. I just always think about, like, who's, it's so hard for us women because we blame ourselves we, we deny it even happened to us. And the, just the idea someone could have been the person saying, we did the best we could that night. We got through it together. And for you not to have had that, but you found it in other ways. You found other people. That's so much part of your resilience. You found other people who have the, a similar story who will stand with you on this. Oh, sadly, my story is the story of many, many people. You know, every day mm. somewhere on our planet, a woman, a man, a child mm. is... Mm or assaulted, abused in some way. So, yeah, my story is not uncommon. It right, is a story right. of many. And you're right, when I finally found my voice and I now speak publicly about rape, um, it's a bit like the hashtag Me Too. So many people out there find mm-hmm. strength in other people speaking. I found strength in other people speaking, which gave me my strength, and I just really pay that forward, you know. It right. was someone speaking out that helped me to find my voice and... We are stronger together. You know, it is a big yeah. army of support over on social media. It's amazing the people I've connected with. There's no way I would have connected with otherwise in my ordinary everyday life. So, yeah, great support from amazing people on social media. Yeah, it's a courage. And I love the fact that you and I are connected on Facebook. Part of why I reached back out to you, even though we've known, been acquainted with each other for years, is that you did a 16-day thing about victim blaming. And it's so healing for me when I see your post and it's so healing to be even be able to hit openly hit like, because yes. I know women who are still and they, they can be where they are, but they can't even, they relate to what you're posting, but they can't hit like yet. And I get so many messages like that on my public page. They say, I really want to like your post or leave a comment, but then people will know that I've been abused or they know I've been yes. raped. And that just really makes me so sad, you know. Right. But the 16 days is not something that I started. It happens um, in the UK, and I think it's maybe all over the world. On the 25th of November, it's 16 days of action of violence against women. So mm. it's a huge campaign that's been going for a long time, and, and people post survivors, organisations every day for 16 days just to raise awareness. Sadly, we need to post every day because we need yes. awareness every day of the year. But, yes. yeah, it's not something that I set up, but I just take part in it just to amplify my voice more so that we can give voices to the voiceless, really. Yeah. Yeah, you're very much amplifying your voice and the voice for other people. And and, and one of the things that I saw on Facebook, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, is it was such a great post, and I, I want to repost it, but it, it was showing a woman pray, I don't know, from the 1800s and what she was wearing and how we still talk about, well, what was she wearing when she got raped? 
yeah. and that women need to cover their bodies and that we're responsible for how a boy or a man feels about our body being exposed and that rape has been happening from the beginning and women have worn, shown no skin whatsoever and yes. still get raped. And that's so much a part of the misinformation and the victim blame is out there. Will you speak into that, please? Well, clothes do not cause rape. That's Alcohol right. does not cause rape. Late nights does not cause rape. The only thing that causes rape, 100% are rapists. You know, That's we right. know that babies in nappies are raped. Women in burkas are raped. Men in jeans, tight jeans and hoodies are raped. It's nothing to do with clothing, lacy underwear, big pants. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. 100% of rapes come down to the perpetrators. And that's it. That took me a long time to work that yeah. out. Very, you know... Like many people riddled with guilt and shame and fear, so worried that people would find out that they would look at me differently, like it was a reflection of me somehow. They would mm. look at me how I was left, that broken, contaminated, worthless, dirty, less than, all of the mm. negative self-images, I just piled them on myself because we're not supported by society, really, are right. we? I think it's even harder for women when women come out then you then do get, well, what were you wearing and why were you out late and why did you lie about where you were staying? Mm -hmm. I think when men come out, there's more sympathy. I don't think they are subjected to the same victim blaming. They don't say to a man, well, what were you wearing? You right. know, I've never heard that when a, right. a male survivor has come out. But, yeah, so we, it's, it's not easy to break through that shame. It's not. And, and even thinking, like, when, when someone gets carjacked, we don't say, well, that's what you get for driving a Porsche. Yes. Like we don't we don't even think that way, but when it comes to women being raped because of just generationally misinformation and us for some reason wanting to pacify the rapists or not believe that this is happening to so many men and women, we're we're perpetuating lies. Well, I think it's the impact of the trauma on our mind and on our body. It it's hard to generalize because women and men will respond in many, many different ways, but there are some patterns. And I think it's such a personal crime that we implode, you know, we don't, we can explode as well, but right. we take it so personal. And then also we're not backed up by society. And um, yeah, it, it, it's really hard, especially yeah. with all the messages we hear. And also in the UK, the judicial system is rubbish, you know, in Scotland where I live, such a small percentage of crimes that make it to court end in prosecution. You know, it's yeah. something like 4%, 5%. Right. So you think, well, why put yourself through all of that? Because you're cross-examined and, you know, your life is laid bare. It's really very traumatic to go through a court process. Why would you bother when the chances are he's not going to be found guilty? Yeah, and and, and that's a sad, sad truth that's happening. And that's so true also, the word implode, us women, you know, what blame looks like on the average man is they explode and we get scared of that. So we back away from it. Women implode. We go into an eating disorder. We go into alcoholism. We go into trying to be perfect. And no, so all of those. <laughs> absolutely right. That's what, that's what we do those. because yeah. when you have that level of disconnection and trauma residing in your body, like you, you have no container. Yes. So it comes out behaviorally and then it becomes about the behavior instead of what trauma led to the, to the behavior. Absolutely. And, and when we implode, it is a false sense of power. Right? Mm -hmm. Blaming yourself is a false sense of power. It's a pseudo feeling of power because we don't know where to put it. We don't know where to put all these emotions and all this physiological reaction. And especially, you know, being the age that I was, I don't think I really had the vocabulary or the words for what had taken place. 
And so it was far easier for me. I didn't plan to do this, but subconsciously my mind thought it was protecting me and it just numbed out. It just yes. shut my head off from my body and I numbed and numbed out for years. And as you mentioned, eating disorders, drugs, alcohol, depression, you know, inappropriate behavior, promiscuity, everything to just numb out even more. Right. I just did it. Yeah. Connected yeah. My life. yeah. And that, and that's also just proving like that's what happens for those of you listening who are therapists like you. We go into our dorsal vagal, which is a place where people just disassociate and they collapse. And that's for rest and digest live, which means it becomes about oversleeping, undersleeping, overeating, undereating. It becomes about doing anything to not re-experience the trauma. Yeah. And so we end up adding more trauma to ourselves because re-victimization is real. Yes. Right, and I think that's part of your story as well. Yeah, I well, you know, every time you get a trigger, you're being re-traumatized really, aren't you? There's <laughs> always. Very much. Very much. Yeah, so re-victimization, I guess, when I finally did come out and say something, you know, my friend didn't back me up. But also, um, my dad really wanted to go to the police and my mum was very, very quiet and it took me years mm. to understand her silence. Mm. And it was only after my dad had passed away that my mum revealed to me that as an eight-year-old girl, she had been raped by a neighbour. Every time my grandma would send her to play with her friend, this man, her dad would abuse my mum. She could find her voice and she told um, her brother, who then told my grandparents. And so this man was charged. It was discovered he was also abusing his two daughters. But my mom's family moved away. They sold the house and they never spoke about it again. So, you know, in the moment when I'm telling my mum and dad that it was true, my mum was just silenced by her trauma because yeah. even now at the age of 80, she's never had any therapy, no counselling. They had five yeah. kids together never spoke about it. And I, I look at her in awe now. I think, how amazing. I've had shitloads of therapy. Right. <laughs> it took, yeah. me, it took yeah. me forever to get to this place. And she did that all by herself. Wow. So, you know, but I misunderstood her silence for years. And mm-hmm. in that moment, I thought my friend has betrayed me and my mum didn't believe me. So it was it was a really tough space for me in that, in that right. moment. Which puts you back more into behaviour. Because yes. like you don't you don't have any comprehension of your mom's life. So your dad's like, let's go to the police. Your mom yeah. is now reliving, re-experiencing everything that she went through. They're like, well, it was just amazing that her family followed through with it and helped stop the abuse to these other two little girls. Mm-hmm. But then it's a whole new life. They create a new life and so, as if it didn't happen. Yes, exactly. Brush out yeah. the carpet. Yeah. If we don't yeah. speak about it, then it didn't happen. That's right. Um, you don't, that's the uh, message of shame is if you don't talk about it, it didn't happen. And it was interesting, you know, when I was writing my book, I asked for my hospital notes. I was admitted to a children's psychiatric ward for a good few months after I took an overdose. And I wanted to see, you know, if they had any idea why this normal 13-year-old girl just turned into one overnight that couldn't mm-hmm. eat, couldn't speak and hated herself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, no one the whole time I was in there ever asked me the right questions. No one ever said, what has happened to you? You know, they just looked at, I was an anorexic, depressed teenager. My mum was unwell at home. So they put two and two together and made 65. And, you know, that was it. Uh, So, yeah, there was no way in my notes to suggest they had any idea that I had been traumatized by an event in my life. They just put me down as this depressed anorexic yeah, I love what you just said that two plus two equals 65, <laughs> right? I love I love that description. I so get that. And just the idea that you're in there for months yes. and you're only your label. You're only the diagnoses. Yes. 
-hmm. instead of looking at what's the trauma that led to the behavior that led to these diagnoses. Like you didn't even get that. We were talking months in there with a bunch of trained therapists and no one asked you what happened. No, never. I had had some contact when I was about 11 because my mum was bedridden at this point. She was also really poorly on the night I went out. She was still bedridden. And I had an epileptic fit because I think I was scared she was going to die. And when I was in hospital, as a children's hospital, I had contact with a psychologist. So we had the same psychologist again when I later went back after my suicide attempt. And he just, you know, picked up where he left off. He never... Mm thought it was anything different just sort of with all family yeah. dynamics and what was going on with my mum and yeah. you know I was just a worried teenager that caused all of this so lazy medicine just really lazy mm-hmm. medicine. Oh, yeah lazy medicine where you're putting in what, what would be your message to the doctors that are listening the therapists the counselors that are listening right now well, about I, how to, how to interact yeah, I am also a psychotherapist, so I would hope that people, that was the late 1970s, it was a long time ago, I'd like to think that things have changed, I'd like to think that people would not just look at the bad behaviour, or not, I don't like to call it bad, just the behaviour, uh, and maybe look beyond the labels and see mm-hmm. what's going on, you know, that did not come from nowhere, mm-hmm. it had to come from somewhere, uh, and maybe look, and even if I mean, I couldn't speak because the very last thing they, they said to me, uh, they held the knife against my throat, that if I spoke out about it, then they would kill me. And that, that silenced me for years, as well as all the shame and the guilt. Sure. But maybe if somebody had said something, did something happen, maybe I could have nodded or maybe I would have cried. There might have been some reaction that, that they would know that, you know, there's a reason why I am like I am. It wasn't just... Uh, being anorexic one day, you know? <laughs> right, yeah. The behavior comes last. Yeah. The behavior comes last. Yeah, that's that's really, really good. So the idea for you, you know, as a as a psychotherapist, and I'm just gonna veer into this for a second, you know, I'm sure a lot of people come in to see with you, interact with you because they've heard you speak or something, but someone who doesn't know you, mm-hmm. how do you decide about self disclosure? Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's about me when I'm sitting in the chair. It's yeah. always about the other person. And some people do have read my book and they know my story and they might try to get into it. And it's not, if it's relevant, then it's okay. Yeah. But if it's not, if I really think it may help, I mean, ethically, we're not really meant to, but sometimes it's actually really okay to right. reveal, you know, we're human beings as well, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, mm-hmm. I do reveal sometimes, but if somebody comes in with my book in their hand and they want me to sign it, it's a little bit odd, I have to say, the first time that yeah. happened. Yeah, I've, I haven't gotten used to yet people coming in, and I don't know when they said I've read your book. Like, the the reaction I get, like, I, I, I think I leave the room for a second yes. emotionally and have to kind of come back and because it's so vulnerable. Yeah, even though it's I know it. it's out there, it's incredibly vulnerable to have your whole story on on pages. It is, but now it's been a few years, and now it doesn't impact me at all. It's as if mm. it was someone else. So that's that feeling, which I know what you mean, is has yeah. passed. But I made the choice a couple of years ago to stop working as a therapist. I actually haven't actually had a a client in front of me for a while, but. I know really well what it's like to sit in both chairs. You know, I've yeah. been a client many, many times and I've been a right. therapist many times. So, yeah, it's an interesting room. <laughs> and it's also really good to see a therapist who knows what it's like to be in the hot seat. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, if I hadn't done the journey I had done, I couldn't journey yeah. that with my clients. There's yeah. no way yeah. I could take them to places I'd never been to. That's How right. could I possibly right. hold myself steady in that, you know? Right. So I... I for them, I know it doesn't, I don't want to sound big headed, but it's good that they get me because I can really hear anything mm-hmm. and not 
disturbed by it. I can really mm-hmm. hold that space because I know exactly what it's like to sit on the other right. in the other right. chairs. So yeah. sadly, nothing really shocks me. Yeah, it's a gift to get people. I tell people they get a free session if they shock me. Yeah, I haven't been shocked in twenty years. Like, I somebody please say something, something that shocks me, right? No. So, but yeah, I totally get that. And so, can we talk a little bit about that? You you forgave these men who did this to you. Yeah, and, and so, I never really, never really chose to. I never really planned to. I can't say chose to because obviously chose to in the end. It wasn't a plan of mine. It really just came up. Naturally, I suppose it was when my eldest daughter was 13 and uh, and I very nearly didn't become a mum because I thought it was going to be like being raped again. But obviously, eventually I changed my decision. I have three gorgeous girls, but I was studying psychotherapy. I was doing loads of personal development courses and Anna was the same age that I was. And then it just all came back. All the Mm. images, dreams, flashback, nightmares, worst fears, everything. I was so traumatized and re-triggered and it was like what's going on I really thought I was going mad I thought if it was really that bad I'd remember it but you know now I get it I understand it's when it's that bad your mind thinks it's helping and it shuts it down and it did its job for a while because I think if it hadn't shut me down it would have been too much for me at some points in my life so it does come back when we think we're strong enough even though I didn't believe it. So I was the worst client. I went to my therapist and said, um, I want you to take these pictures away. I don't want to see them anymore. <laughs> Obviously, we can't take these pictures away. Um, and they come back because actually it's time to face it. And in the three years, I realized it wasn't the pictures that were disturbing my mind. It was my denial. I just mm. refused to believe it. I was fighting it and fighting it. And I, every week, how do you know this is true? How do you know I haven't just heard so many women's stories because I've I worked at Women's Aid for 14 years and rape crisis as a volunteer for mm. six years. I said, I've just absorbed all these women's stories and that my head's confused. And why would you make it up? He <laughs> even say to me, and I'm like, I don't know. Surely you would pick something better than this if you're going to make something up. Right. It's that push and pull the whole time. And eventually I got to a place where I thought, I have to accept this. I'm going to drive myself mad. Mm. And it was near to the end of these sessions that he made this suggestion to me one day. And he just said, you know, maybe there weren't born rapists, these men. And I at first was so angry with him. I couldn't believe he could say something so outrageous. But, you know, he sent me on a path of inquiry. And I wanted to understand really how two young men who weren't really much older than me, how did they know to be so violent? You know, what had they experienced or seen or heard to make them behave that way because I don't believe we are born rapists I do believe Mm. we all come in a blank sheet we come in equal but we get conditioned or corrupted Mm -hmm. by life and somehow I felt I guess compassion in my heart towards them because I thought you know I've done a really good job of living my life well but they have to live with what they've done to me. And I thought, that that can't be easy. The way it leaked out of me, it's got to leak out of them, whether they're aware of it or subconsciously, it's going to impact on their life. And then I just thought, you know, I could forgive them to cut all the ties with them and my past, because they were like chains. They were, I was still chained mm-hmm. to them energetically, and they didn't even know about it. And also being so angry and full of hate and revenge plots all the time in my head 
they didn't know. It didn't harm them in any way. It only harmed me and my kids and my mm-hmm. husband. And, you know, it's like drinking poison and expecting them to drop down and die when I'm right. drinking it myself. So it was a bit silly to be so angry with people that don't even know. So I saw um, forgiveness really was my my key to freedom, I guess. It allowed me to have understanding, acceptance, compassion, and it just... I could just let it all go, really. Yeah, it's beautiful. But, but that came after years and years and years and years of um, processing and healing mm-hmm. and therapy and different therapeutic approaches. You know, if anyone's listening, sadly, it's not an overnight fix. It is It is a process. It's like many, many, many layers to get back to me, the me before I was raped, you know, that... Um, mm-hmm the essence of who we all are, what, mm-hmm. the, how we come into this world, I realised after a long time that they could never touch that. And, and our job is just to uncover the real you, which is in there, just covered right. up with layers of trauma. So, yeah, it's a big big healing process. But, yeah, forgiveness, ultimately, it was my choice. So to, that um, your, your essence, now looking back, who do you think you were before you lost your innocence? Tell me about your essence. I was just a, a normal, you know, young girl. I was quite shy, mm. um, very loyal, loving, uh, just a normal girl, loved live her life at home, just happy-go-lucky, really, and that changed. You know, my whole mm. life changed afterwards. The world just wasn't a safe place anymore. That's I didn't right. know who to trust, what to trust, where I could trust. Uh, just, it just destroyed all of that. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, very contrastingly different to the little girl I was to the one that yes. I was after the trauma. Yeah. It's not that the, the trauma event is good, is that what I'm saying, but the beliefs about our ourselves and the world that come from that event, that is what plagues us. Yes. Yeah, right. that's what I say. It's not really what happens. It's what mm-hmm. we do with it. And I right. just... Um, you know, when they were degrading me, I, I allowed those thoughts in and I thought, well, I can't be worth anything if they can treat me so badly. You know, I must be worthless. Mm-hmm. I must be mm-hmm. damaged goods. I must mm-hmm. be broken or contaminated. And it wasn't. I never was. Never. never. But the shame that comes in, like a shameful act was done to you. And again, as women, we employ, we, 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 I believe I am that act. Yes. Right? But being able to go get those conditions off of our conditioned self, that leads to an essence of yeah. who you really, really are. And that's who gets to sit in front of me today. That's who's taking the stage in so many different places. Yes. When I realized, yeah, you know, the shame was never mine. The shame yeah. never belonged yeah. to me. The shame that's always right. belonged to them. I carried inappropriate shame backed up by societal beliefs for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Many, many women, you know, supported me in those shameful thoughts that I had about yeah. myself. It was never, ever my shame. And I that's also right. realized... That I'm not my body. I'm not the things that they did to me. None of us are our events in life. You know, we're all so yeah. much more than what happens to us. Right. And that's a bit of a paradox because, yes, it was like bad weather. It, it did shadow my life for a long time. But, yes, mm-hmm. I'm also not what happened to me. Yeah, no, it's very, very well said. And, and my TEDx talk is about shame and about teaching people that shame is a gift. Someone mm-hmm. has to give it to you. And once you receive that gift, you won't receive anything else, right? Because then we don't think we're worthy of receiving, having our needs met, receiving things that are meant for us. And Mm -hmm. so your ability to put that down and then start receiving really who you are, your essence, the gifts of life, like it's just 
transformational. The only way I I could eradicate my shame was to step into my shame, to do the very things that terrified me or to do the very things that my mind is screaming, don't do that, don't speak out, don't share your story, don't write a book, they'll all think this, that and the other. And actually learning to stay steady in my shame is what really diluted Mm -hmm. it, you know, realising that... I just was fed up of being ashamed, basically. Yeah. I just was yeah. tired and tired of being ashamed. So, uh, yeah. yeah. So you had to walk into the one room you didn't want to walk in. Fair, happy, steady in your shame. Mm-hmm. Have to conquer, have victory over that shame, right? The idea that the very story you were avoiding had to be the story that you told. Yeah, that's just absolutely it. To walk into the one room I didn't want to go into. It's really beautifully put, Kim. I mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah, and did it so well. And once that happens and you realize other people have the same room, all right, and then, again, it gives you room for so many more opportunities that you've been able to do because you there's a freedom about you. There's a freedom that you're teaching other people. What, how would you put that, like, what are the keys to your freedom? You know, on that night, I really left my body. I, I wasn't in for years and years and years. I was like a house that had no furniture and I just felt like this vessel, this empty space. And I always thought my journey was about getting back into my body and getting my memories back. I don't know where I got that thought because once I got my memories back, I didn't like my memories. But I had gaps and gaps for years. You know, even now, mm. even before that time when my family say, do you remember when we were seven and ten? And actually, I can't really remember it. It's, it shut it down so well, mm-hmm. my mind, that it's really hard to retrieve But I think my job has now, what I try to do is stay as steady as possible, to really stay grounded and connected so that I am back in my body. And once I got back in, it's like, finally, I'm alive. I felt, you know, more joyful. I think, well, I know when I shut down, it was like I put myself into a deep freeze. And before my Mm -hmm. family knew what had happened, because I went through a very grunty, non-speaking stage. They thought I was a normal teenager. Um, They used to call me the ice maiden before they knew what had happened to me. And really, once I started to do this journey, I guess I started to defrost. And it's not just more of, it's not just you go back to that place before the trauma. I think more of you can show up because it occupied so much space inside of my body. The whole inside was filled and obsessed, consumed with this. And when you can let it go, there's more of you can show up that never was even there before, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. It's so much of my message. I love what you said about the defrost, that we go into a trauma response, a freeze, a dissociation, and that how do you safely defrost? Mm -hmm. And so I got to ask you about your defrosting, because so many of us have a hard time being in relationships with men and feeling safe again, and that a safe man came into your life. Yes. I would love to hear your defrosting about dating him. Yeah, I was only 17, but somehow up until that point, I'd become really promiscuous, which is one of the many side effects. If a guy tried it on, I was too scared to say no or fight them off because I Mm -hmm. thought it was going to get violent again. So I let them do whatever they wanted to do, um, which was not good because then I earned myself a reputation and then I invited more, you know, attracted more Mm -hmm. people to me. But when I met Stephen, my husband, I was traveling in Israel for a year. Instinctively, I just knew that he was safe you know that he was kind and he's all he puts up with a lot of rubbish from me um he's always just been very steady very grounded and uh I lived in London he lived in Scotland and we would travel 
up and down every two weeks. You know, it's a good 400 miles away before cheap flights, before mobile phones. I'd take the overnight bus and we'd write letters, um, you know, so it was very different then. But and yeah, I just felt that I could trust them. I still didn't trust other men. I still had a lot of issues around men and um, very scared of being out of control. I was really worried about my safety a lot of the time. But something, I guess, always drove me to clean up. Once I decided that when I was shown by a few different situations, I thought, I, I don't clean this up. When I, it's Really, when I was studying psychotherapy, I thought I was really healed. You know, I thought I was doing a great job. But obviously, we can convince ourselves of anything, I think. True, very and true. I, yeah, and when I saw stuff I was being shown, I thought, if I don't clean this up, this is going to hang over me for the rest of my life. So even though I hated going to therapy, I absolutely hated it because every time I went, I would shake, I would be sick, mm. I would cry, I would retreat into that, you know, child, 13-year-old silent space. I just regressed. I was, oh, it was horrible. Mm-hmm. And I knew what I would face every time I went as well. There would be another memory or another picture or another degrading image of something they had done to me. But something always drove me just to clean up. You know, I had to clean up this mess. Mm-hmm. I wanted to drain my swamp, I guess, really. I don't know if we ever completely drain it, but it feels pretty drained at the moment. Um, growing some flowers out the swamp now, so that's good. But yeah, something just, I don't know where it came from. But something drove me always, that intention inside, I've got to clean this up. Yeah. In order to be a good mum, a good partner, good to have a good life, you know. Yeah, so beautiful. I work with a lot of women and when they start dating and getting married, like the conversation that needs to happen with a husband about their past and about what might happen once they become sexual. Mm-hmm. It's a really difficult and necessary conversation to have with your partner it is and I don't think I really explained it to him completely to be honest but uh, yeah when we were intimate not anymore now um uh, but at the time sometimes his face would turn into their faces or Uh, above him I could see them hovering above me and I'd have to push them off me and I would panic or Mm -hmm. lots of things could do like going to the dentist I could you know have to leave because I couldn't have things put in my mouth yeah, or, 100%. or loads of things, you know, but yeah. be very patient. <laughs> and yeah. it was only when um, when I was going back for therapy, when Anna was 13, that's maybe like 14 years ago or so, that my therapist said, you know, maybe it'd be a good idea to tell him exactly yeah. what happened because he didn't know at that point all of the details. And I just thought I could, he might not want to be with me anymore. I might turn him off me mm-hmm. if he knows all that had happened to me. And I couldn't do it face to face. I couldn't do it in the daytime. The only way I could do it was in bed in the dark and he was holding my hand and I was getting upset telling him and that to the point mm-hmm. where I said, you know, well, they nearly killed me and they did this and that. And he said, but they didn't. And I thought, oh, you could actually make a really good therapist. They didn't kill me. <laughs> right. You know, I am still alive. When we get caught in all that fantasy, well, they could have killed me. But if you stay with the here and now, that's mm-hmm. what steadied you. They didn't. And I'm here and live my life and live yeah. my life as well as I possibly can in order, um, you know, my TED, I call it my best revenge, is to, in spite of what happened, live my life as well as I possibly can. Yeah, and and to free other people, and that's exactly yeah. what's happening. But it's such an important thing, I don't think we talk about enough, is how do you tell your partner, this is my experience, and so in moments, your partner's not your partner. 
Yes. Something else is happening. What a courageous conversation to have. And I'm so, I'm so glad he was so receptive. Yeah. Well, I think in the beginning, you know, because obviously he knew once he asked me to marry him and I said, you know, I'm not going to become a mum. So I had to tell them that about I had been raped and it was just too much for me, the idea of giving mm-hmm. birth. So he always knew that, but he didn't know all of the details until I, I told him yeah. that one night. Yeah. So, yeah. But it also reminds me of how triggered we are. Like, you know, not being able to use a larger spoon because of something in your mouth, not being able to go to dentist with ease. Like there's so much that no one knows about unless they've been through it, yeah. right? There's so many symptoms to this, which is why when people were victim blaming or asking what what were you wearing or all the things being said, and it's said a lot by women, mm-hmm. it's hard to contain and have a good response to people. And I think you do an excellent job with that. I, I like punching people in the throat. It does not work out. <laughs> you do such a good job of putting words to it because when you're that symptomatic from being raped and other people are then say, blame you for it in some way, it is catastrophic. Yeah, absolutely. It just magnifies whatever you're feeling, doesn't it? Absolutely. And what you've already been battling with and thinking anyway. And so it's so important that you continue and people keep listening to you about rape is caused by rapists yeah nothing else nothing else no nothing else whatsoever yeah absolutely my um niece or nephew could walk in my room right now completely naked and it would there's nothing you can do to get me to touch them yeah nothing right yeah i think it's so important we keep talking about that with all the therapy that you did and and all the compassion that you have discovered in your essence and everything that's happening. Is there a certain style of therapy that that worked best for you that you find that's really good for people who've been through rape? You know, I, I don't know, actually, because I think everything I tried had its place. So mm. when I was really caught in denial, my therapist said to me, maybe you should try some body work. And I thought, don't even know what that is, but I'll give it a go. So I went along and I lay on the, on the massage couch. It was called therapeutic massage. And I could hear this person crying and screaming and kicking and shouting. And I thought, oh, for goodness sake, who's making all that noise? And then I realized it was me. Yeah, <laughs> it was all yeah. coming from me. And I, I actually, as embarrassed as I was, because, you know, we're British and we don't like to make a fuss, whatever. I, I actually thought I, I can't I couldn't trust my mind at that point. I was really in an argument with my mind, you know, trying to mm. these memories. But I had to trust my body. There's no way I could have made up any of those right. reactions. And I wouldn't That's want right. to behave like that in front of a therapist. You know, I'd want to behave properly, whatever properly was. And so that then sent me on another journey of trying out loads of different types of therapies. So from there, I've had transformational breath work, which mm. was incredible. One mm. session was like 10 sessions of therapy. Wow. No dialogue. It just went straight to the trauma trapped in my cells and released. <laughs> and shaking every time I've worked with a shaman for like 15 years I've done fire walks I've taken plant medicine uh not ayahuasca so I was always a bit scared of that one but I've taken San Pedro Mm -hmm. uh, which really really helped as well but yeah hypnosis loads of different things and a lot of um getting back into my body so I use a lot of sport I used to run all the time I ran every day of my life until one day I saw I'm not just running physically, I'm running emotionally. I, mm-hmm. I could have run forever, which was great for my marathon training, but it, I wasn't connected in. So I switched. I went uh, to karate at 41. You have to be able to 
when you punch, it's not from your fist, it's from your hips, it's from your hand, it's from your, mm. your you know, your stomach. I went to a weight training. I'm a weightlifter. I did windsurfing. So all of these things challenged getting back into my body and being out of control. And alongside all the therapies, I wouldn't say there was one that worked over and above. Obviously, the talking therapy was the best one because mm-hmm. that helped me to even say the word rape. I could never yeah. say rape, yeah. even just to say it. And I can even remember one day we were, I had a supervision session with one of my tutors and I walked into the class and the word therapist had been written on the blackboard and somebody had put a line, line. in the E and the R. And I don't know what it was about. It wasn't to do with us, but it just said the rapist. And the whole time I was just yep. nervous. I just, just seeing that yeah. word just terrified me. And then later on, you know, I, I was just in tears at it. And they said it was just talking about how we could possibly do bad therapy. And what you then become, you become the emotional rapist of your clients. But even to see it written down was terrifying. So to be able to speak it and say it really started my journey. But all the other treatments all had their place as well. Yeah, no, I love, love that answer. And anybody's listening that has this unfortunate life experience, like if you go back to our podcast with Sandra, Wel- Sandra Welper, that's what it's about is body work. You go back to Liz Brookholder, that's what it's hypnotherapy. Like there's a lot that's already within this that y'all can kind of research because it is about finding different things. It's not yeah. one thing because no. rape didn't take one thing away from you. Yeah, and you know, when we're triggered, it's not an emotion, it's a physical it's impact. Physical. You know, if you yeah. hear something, smell something, see someone that looked like them, mm-hmm. I would get palpitations, I would feel yeah. busy, I would feel sick. That's not an emotion, yes. that's a real physical response. That's right. So I learned that the trauma is in our body, it's right deep in ourselves. If you read anything by um Babette Rothschild, you know, the body remembers mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. the body remembers the school. Mm-hmm. And then I, when I learned about PTSD, I thought, I've had that for years. I never yeah. even knew that's what it right. was. All, all these constant being on edge and being on my guard and jumping and crying at any single thing, that's what that was. You yeah. know? I never realized, but, you know, working it through the body, really helped and I'm, I know I'm fortunate I could afford to pay for a lot of these therapies and it might not be accessible to anyone but to get back into your body your own way dance or sing or that's right breathe find an that's app right. do something to connect because for me it was about the integration you know my head had left my body and even mm-hmm. though I, I'm a therapist and I know about disassociation when it comes to you doesn't make any sense you that's don't right. see it at all but uh, it was really about lining up to really reintegrate my mind and my body and my psyche. To yeah, it's, just, it's such a such a great answer, especially even them running. Like I'm a runner. And I also did karate for years to try to help myself heal. And after about two years, I had somebody in class tell me, you know, Kim, every man in here, you have hit that man in the private area at least once. <laughs> and I quit then. I, at that point, I realized what I was really doing. And I was like, okay, that's not why I'm really here. I would just... It's, take it out. Yes, I was taking it out on them. So partly entertained by that. At the same time, I'm not here to hurt people, right? But it is about finding running is my thing that helps me get connected back to my body. Because for us, the body becomes the enemy. Yes. And that's why you see so much eating disorders with people who, male and female, who have been sexually assaulted is because all of a sudden, or people denying their gender. 
because yeah. what we believe is that my gender is what caused the rape. Absolutely. And I thought my body let me down, you know, in the very beginning before I was aware of what was taking place. I was just on the floor and I was still, the effect of the alcohol and I was smiling. And then he said, oh, look, she's enjoying herself. And I always thought, was it my body? Did that, did that give me away, you know? Um, and I've spoken to so many men and women in therapy that may be orgasm during a rape. Yes, but it's just a physical right. reaction. We yeah. are 99% biology, you know? We are. Yeah. Our body is going to respond if somebody's stimulating it in some way. Right. But that is, is really tough for people when that has happened to them. It's, it's really hard. But yeah, for years I cut my hair. You can see now, obviously, I have now embraced right, my great. hair. Yeah. Um, I, I wore huge, big, dark, baggy clothes. I really hid myself because I thought, mm-hmm. I can remember telling somebody a long time ago and they said, oh, you must have been very pretty then. I think, okay, so it's You still are. <laughs> I know, but that's, <laughs> it wasn't, that's not an excuse. That's not, you know, yeah. But that made me think I have to stop being pretty. I have to cover it all right. up. And, you That's know, right. that made me ashamed for how I looked as well, mm-hmm. that I had brought this on myself because I had attracted it in. So, yeah, people, they have to be careful with their words. That's they don't right. realize where they can land in someone. Right. The idea is based on someone being attractive or someone being unattractive. The idea of it being based on what you were wearing. And also, you know, you're saying it's a great thing. People know it's symptomatic. All of a sudden, you start wearing really baggy clothes or there's a denial of gender or all of a sudden food becomes your, your the enemy and there's a restriction or purging. Purging is a huge thing to do because it's, it's purging is a violent act. It's violence against yourself. And a lot of times that comes from someone being sexually assaulted. Like These are all things to look for and somebody and to treat them really gently about that because guess what? At that point, that's the best they can do. Mm-hmm. That's all they know to do at that point. Yeah. Yeah, and so the, for you to find so many physical things, let your body be your body, and the idea of, you know, the body's not the enemy, and you know your body's made to get lubricated when certain things happen. That does not mean that does not mean consent. Mm-hmm. Men tell me they've been raped and they got an erection. That is not consent. Yeah. It's just your body doing what God created it to do. Absolutely, it's just biology, isn't it? Just biology. Yeah. Yeah, but think how long it takes us to realize that that's a deep truth. Long time. It's <laughs> a long time whatsoever. So one of your statements is so much more than the sum of one night. Yeah. And that that's what you've lived with. Can you expand on that for us? Yeah, I guess it's really what we've touched on that, you know, I realized that I wasn't my body. I wasn't the things that was done to it. Um, none of us are, are what happens to us. And yet, paradoxically, it influenced my life for years. And yet, I'm, I'm not what they did to me. I'm not Mm -hmm. the sum of one night. We're Mm -hmm. so much more than that. We have so much more in our life. But for a long time, I just thought I'm just going to be this woman that's been raped and, Mm -hmm. you know, just consumed everything. But you can, you really can move beyond it. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and use it as a stepping stool to get a new view and be a different person. Yeah. You know, it, it sounds odd now, but from where I'm sitting now, and this journey has been one of many years, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but I wouldn't undo it now either because yeah. it, it taught me so much. It taught me to be grateful. You know, I very nearly lost my life that night. Um, it just taught me that there's so much more going on in life than what we really see. And I wouldn't have seen that if I didn't really have an out-of-body experience. I saw, I guess, what we could call my protector that night, um, which was something I wasn't going to write about in my book, but then I did write about it. And yeah, mm. I just saw that life is for living and I'm not going to waste mm. a moment of it. So it's taught me a lot, but yeah. 
people struggle when they hear me say, I, I would never undo what happened to oh, me. Oh, I, I just hear is deep acceptance. Deep acceptance because you you have victory over it. it's not as you said it's not who you are yeah yeah and so to still regret the past means I'm in the past yes and you're not no and for a long time that's what happens when we're triggered we just replay the same movie over mm-hmm. and over in fact it was like a multi complex cinema screen I was at I just mm-hmm. pick up one film put it in the other and then eventually after a while you can change the movie you have got to stop watching it after a while right. because. It will just consume you. It really yeah. will. Well, we think by replaying it and ruminating on it that it won't happen again. We mm-hmm. think the reliving it becomes our protection, and it, it actually causes us just to recreate it, the actual thing with someone else, very subconsciously. Even, yeah, I don't even know if it's conscious. I think my mind just replayed it and replayed it because it maybe wanted me to pay attention yeah. to it, and I'm, just, I'm not looking at that. And the more you deny yeah. it, the more... Poof comes in harder and stronger. That's right. right. That's And that's the power of the subconscious. That's why I'm such an advocate for therapy and know you are as well is because the unconscious becomes into the conscious and then you've got power over it. Yeah. But I think also to verbalize something, it, yeah. that takes a lot of courage. You know, for yeah. many years, I thought I'm going to phone a rape crisis help my number. I was phone and I just put the phone down. Yeah, thing, yeah. I'd listen and I couldn't speak or I'd go to make an appointment. I've even gone as far as the appointment and I've run away and I couldn't even yeah. knock on the door. So to actually release it, in my book I call it giving it oxygen, you know, where mm. we can give it oxygen and share it and someone else witness that, the, the right person that witnesses. And if they give you feedback, um, yeah, this, that, that is so powerful. It really is. Yeah, I, I love that. I love the idea of giving it oxygen because yeah. then it gives you new clean air as well. And, and it is. It's rancid, horrible air that's yeah. stuck inside. It's like an old room in your house where you shove all the broken furniture and rubbish mm. and you shut the doors up. And really giving oxygen, you're opening the doors, you're opening the windows, you're clearing out the junk and you're renovating that room. And it's like 100% yeah. modern, you know, lovely yeah. room now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's really, really need to yeah. kind of upload new programs in our old computers mm-hmm. running an old program which we no longer need right and it's as you said it's modern furniture it's what you would pick because you're current yes. right and so in your forgiveness of this man it sounds like you also a big part of this is that you forgave the 13 year old oh yeah that was that was the person i really had to forgive yeah. first i just had to forgive her for being a naive 13 year old girl mm-hmm. that was in the wrong place at the wrong time that's right. all i did wrong you know I didn't even trust them to get me home because I was already so drunk. So that's all I was, just a naive 13-year-old girl. And mm-hmm. so many people have said to me afterwards, well, it could have been me. You know, I, I was so mm-hmm. drunk one night, I was sleeping in the gutter, or I was so drunk one night, I woke up, didn't even know where I was, and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it's just a, it's a story of many people. Yes, it is. And so many people have freedom because you share your story so openly. And I thank you for that very much. So I'm going to put you in the hot seat for a second. You're a therapist. You're used to this. I'm going to ask you just a few questions and just whatever comes to mind, um, just throw it out there. All right. All right. In the hot seat. Here you go. All right. So what comes to mind? First thing that comes to mind when you hear the word unbroken. Um, Well, to me, unbroken is that I was never broken to start with. Mm. Yeah, that's good. I like that. I love it. All right. If you could give yourself a new name, what would it be? A new name, mm, Victoria for Victorious. That's right, you, <laughs> the victory you. of my life. Yeah, I love that because I think victory a lot when I think about you. That is perfect. Mm. That is perfect. All right, in a positive way, what's been the biggest surprise in your life? 
speaking publicly. Yeah. <laughs> never thought I'd ever do that. Doing a TEDx to 2,000 people, never, never thought right. I would do that. Right. Was that a great experience for you, doing your TEDx? It was, I have to say, terrifying and the mm-hmm. most liberating moment of my life. It was yeah. both. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. All right. What is your favorite movie? Mm, that's that is a tough one. You know, one I really do like is called The Freedom Writers. It's got yes. Hilary Swank. Oh, I love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, plus, it's freedom. That's what you're yes, all about. I absolutely, love I love and it. You're, and you're a writer, so it's great. Okay, so what show do you like that you're the most embarrassed to acknowledge that you like? Oh, at the moment, I'm watching Cobra Kai, but I'm not really embarrassed. <laughs> it's really under, it's such great entertainment. We were watching what was taking place in America the other night, which mm. Obviously, this will be out far, far later on. So it was the attacking of the council buildings and horrified that I can't watch anymore. So put on Cobra Kai and that just, yeah. I'll go to bed watching the news. I just, it's too bad at the moment. Yeah. And and why nothing shocks me, what my patients say, I'm shocked what's happening on the Capitol. That is shocking. It it was horrific. And I am also a daughter of a Holocaust survivor. So there's been some photos of some of the men wearing sweatshirts. One of them says... Camp Auschwitz, which was horrific. I don't. I don't even know who um, sells them. Who thinks that's a good idea, and who buys them? Another one that says six million WE, so it stands for six million wasn't enough. And I only found that out what that meant today. And that's sorry, we're going completely off topic, but yeah, it no, completely. When I say as well, I wasn't shocked. It was just yeah, oh. Yeah, it's How just did they insane. end up like that, so full of hate, so full of hate. Right, especially knowing like things have happened in your life that you could have taken that path, and you you you've taken the opposite, you've taken a path of love and compassion instead. And, and that is pure hate. What they're doing, it's pure is, hate. Yeah, absolutely. Supremacy at their worst. It's just oh, it's just sick thing. It really is. And I don't know what it's like to live in that country and experience that, but to watch it from the UK was just. Horrifying, really horrifying. Yeah, it's beyond embarrassing. Yeah. Beyond embarrassing, yeah. Last question for you. From now on, when you hear flip your lid, what are you going to think about? What I'm comes think to mind? Kim. That's right. That's the best Yay. answer ever given. You're the winner. You're the winner. You. Yeah, it's fantastic. All right, so I know that our listeners are going to love you. Can you tell them a little bit about how to connect to you, your book, your podcast, sure. Facebook, all that? I have a website, which is madelaineblack.co.uk, and you'll find me on all the social media platforms. My book is called Unbroken, and that's on Amazon and all good bookshops. And my new podcast show is called Unbroken, the podcast with Madeleine Black, and that is on all the platforms, Apple, Stitcher, Google, whatever, and on my YouTube channel as well. That is wonderful. Madeleine, it's an honor, honor, honor to know you, to be associated with you as a thriver, to be associated with you um, through this podcast. And thank you for what you're doing for men, for women, to give a voice to those who've been told they're not allowed to have a voice. So thank you for that. Uh, and thank you, Kim. I really appreciate you too. It's been very good on your show. Thanks. It's been awesome. So to our listeners, I know your lid got flipped today. Please do what you need to do next to reconnect to yourself, especially if you had the type of horrific trauma that Madeline had. The resources are out there for you. Thank you all. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Please subscribe, rate, and share. You can find Kim on Facebook or Instagram at KB Honeycutt. 
To get an autographed copy of Kim's book, visit butyourmotherlovesyou.com. Remember, no matter what, treat yourself well today.